Lord, as we come before the Word now, we speak this truth that we have sung to you in prayer, that we do come empty, we come with no merits of our own, but we come to seek in Christ alone our salvation and your grace upon our lives as we walk in new covenant. We thank you for those who have gathered here to witness baptism, for those who have gathered to enter into those waters, and we thank you as we continue our work through the book of First Kings, a section on Elijah. We pray, Father, that you'd open now to our understanding this text of Scripture and, and allow us, Father, by the teaching of your Spirit to integrate all that we have sung and said already this morning with the text that is before us. Please meet with us, sanctify us, and use us together in this time. Meet with us here, we pray, and for the salvation of those who know not Christ, we plead. And thank you for the salvation that you make available in his name. It is through him that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Only God is infinite. Only God has no beginning or end. Only God cannot die. So only God never passes his position on to someone else. He never steps away, he never steps down, he never resigns, he never retires. He never liquidates his estate, he never abdicates his throne, ever. It is not so with us, is it? We, his finite image bearers, the house that you live in, someday someone else will own it and occupy it. Your job, one day someone else will fill that position, or it'll just disappear. Your ministry for Christ will one day die, or be turned over to someone else. We are just passing through this world, and as we do, we are always passing everything off to someone else. And the more precious the possession that we pass off, the more significant the work that we pass on, the more careful we are with the handoff. God also demonstrates this concern. The God who is eternal, the God who is infinite, demonstrates this concern in Scripture, especially when He ordains and orchestrates the transfer of spiritual leadership from one office bearer to another. So, for instance, it is God's direction, it is at his direction, that Moses hands off his shepherding position over Israel to Joshua. And seeking the Lord in an all-night prayer vigil, it is that Jesus started the process of passing off the shepherding care of his church to twelve apostles. In this vein, we see at the end of 1 Kings chapter 19, the selection of Elisha, the prophet who will assume the chief prophetic office of Elijah after his death. So the, this baton pass is crucial to Israel's future, and it is strategic to God's plan of salvation through the ages. Indeed, this handoff, which might seem like some ancient event that we just look in on for a moment, is really directly connected to why we're here today. Now there's a lot more direct connections, certainly, that we could find in the Old Testament and in Scripture. 
but it is directly related to our gathering in the name of Christ today. So remember in chapter 19, we've seen God reveal himself in power and to reveal indeed the power of his word to Elijah on Mount Sinai, that very place where God cut his covenant with his people Israel right after the exodus from Egypt. On this mount, God calls Elijah to state his case. And Elijah stands forward as the prosecuting attorney, so to speak, of Israel. It was a prophet's duty to call the people of God to repentance concerning their sin. It was the call of God through the prophet to trust his word and to walk in obedience with him. And so it was one of the duties of the prophet to come to God in prayer and to speak for the nation. Well, Elijah does that here on Mount Sinai, very significantly at that place. He does so at that place to bring forward the prosecution against Israel. Israel has not listened. They have not responded to my word. They are not walking in covenant. Notice verse 14 of this chapter. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Lord, Israel has rejected your message. Not only are they disobeying your laws, they are trying to silence everyone who speaks for you. We, the prophets of God, those chosen by God to speak your truth, they're seeking to put us to death. That's your covenant people. That's where they stand. What happens? A sitting judge of the universe on Mount Sinai decides for the prosecution and he sentences Israel to suffer the judgment of the covenant. By failing the covenant, they will receive the judging hand of God as is only right and just. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Notice verse 16, you will anoint Elisha in your place. For his part, Elisha is now to focus on building up and adding to the remnant of faithful Israelites. Verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him, in homage and in worship. So Elijah's task will be to build up that remnant, to add to it, and to build it up as he builds up the people of God, but he will also find someone to replace him, which is a subtle way of saying, you're not long for this world. You're passing through. And we will hand off this work to someone else. So project number one, as he heads back north, is to pay a visit to Elisha. 
verse 19, as we've come to this place in this chapter, let's pick up there, verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. So departing from there is where, that, that purple line there, from Mount Sinai, heading north, all the way up to Abel Mahola, where he finds Elisha. Elijah leaving Mount Sinai where God had sent him, where God had revealed his power and the power of his word to him and strengthened his faith for the mission ahead, the mission to build up the remnant of Israel. So Elijah's journey north to Abel Meholah, where Elisha lives, that's verse 16, we find the name where he is at, is a fertile area. Abel Mahola means meadow of dancing or dancing meadow. The beautiful picture of the fertility of that area. And we find Elisha operating a profitable farming venture there. Three observations from what we've just read here in verse 19. But number one, Israel is sowing seed again. The drought is over. Now think about what idolatrous Israelites would be thinking at this point. God is pleased with us. He's allowing fertility again. The plows are out. The seeds are being sown. All must be well. Or, perhaps the more predominant view, Baal is answering our prayers. Baal is making the land fertile again. But what they did not realize is what God was doing. Verses 15 through 17, and the judgment that was coming. Hazael from Syria was going to crush northern Israel. And Jehu from within Israel was going to put to death the entire line of Ahab's family. And Elisha was going to be used as a tool of God's judgment as a prophet as well. So the fertility is a beautiful thing. The fact that it's raining again is a beautiful thing. It does, mean, does not mean that God is pleased. Second observation is that Elisha is apparently a wealthy man. The average Israelite does not plow with 24 oxen. And by being positioned in this sizable farming position uh, or operation, being positioned at the end of it uh, would indicate plowing with that last yoke, the yoke taking two oxen together, plowing with that last yoke of oxen would indicate that he is the operator here, the, the one who's overseeing the work. He can see all of the workers ahead of him from this position, and he is overseeing the whole operation. So Elisha is a very different man than Elijah, the profitable farmer of Dancing Meadow. And God displays again his pleasure to use birds of different feathers to fulfill his purposes. But as Elijah appeared out of nowhere in chapter 17 to deliver the word of judgment to King Ahab, so he appears in Elisha's field. And one imagines Elijah showing up here is just about as out of place as he was in Ahab's opulent court. This is a productive, wealthy farming operation. And this man from the rugged, distant haunts of Gilead shows up in the field. As verse 19 continues, there Elijah passed by him 
and cast his cloak upon him. Probably some linkage there with he's passing by as God passed by him on Mount Sinai. But he's passing by. Uh, I think the idea, though, primarily here is he's just on his journey north. And as he's passing by, he's not going to stay, but he just moves forward, moves on, and on the way, casts his cloak upon him. That means nothing to us. I mean, he's a guy, he's farming. I doubt that he's cold. He's a far wealthier man. He's used to wearing different kind of cloth. This thing probably smelled, and it was probably rough, and it probably wasn't a welcome thing to be covered with. But if we go into the culture of that day, everybody understood what this meant. This, this was investiture to a sacred office. The cloak was a symbol of the office of the prophet, and Elisha is thus chosen as Elijah's disciple and his eventual successor. Did Elijah know Elisha previously? We don't know. Did Elisha study among the school of the prophets? We don't know. What preparation was his? None of this is given to us in the narrative. We do know that the prophets of Israel were chosen instruments of God to speak his word directly to his people. And it's really vital for us in the Christian faith, it's vital for everyone who trusts Christ as Savior to understand the role of the prophet. It is significant to our salvation. As we understand this office in Scripture, to hear the word of a true prophet of God was to hear the words of God. To obey the voice of a true prophet was to obey God and welcome covenant blessings. It's not to say that everything a prophet ever said was right. That anything that a prophet desired you had to do. It's not the case. But when a prophet spoke for God, he spoke for God. The very words of the Lord were on his lips. As John Frame puts it, the prophet is a divinely approved substitute for the divine voice itself. So the prophet who spoke for God, calling Israel to repentance and obedience in keeping with the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, was a true prophet. There were many false prophets. Many who said, God has said, and what they filled in was a pure lie or a twisted truth. And Israel had to come to discern who are the true prophets, who are the false prophets. But all of that aside, the prophet is a divinely approved substitute for the divine voice itself. That was Elijah's role, and that is now going to become Elisha's role. So the prophet spoke for God calling Israel under this covenant to repentance and obedience to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But let's, let's dig down a little rabbit hole here a little further. And on a more personal level, Elisha was called to pass on his farming operation to others by this call to the prophetic office. He cannot be, unlike God, in two places at once. And this is no small matter. It was a call first to abandon the life he knew. A simple, lucrative life of tilling the land and raising crops. 
It was a call, secondly, to follow as disciple the most wanted man in Israel. And as a brief aside, not the main point of the narrative, but I think a point of appropriate application, notice that God chooses this prophet, a man who is busy about his work. Elisha is not sent off into the wilderness to find some hermit in the desert who's sitting on his head with his crossed legs humming mantra. There's a prophet for sure. No, it's a man who's busy in the grimy, dirty work of farming. And a man who's doing well by all accounts. He chooses a man working in the business of farming, laboring to do what God providentially had given him to do. Undoubtedly through a family that had established itself and had developed some level of expertise and some level of wealth, he's just carrying forward and we see here again the dignity of hard work. We're also challenged by Elisha's readiness to follow God's calling without warning and a great personal cost. Isn't it a joy to hear those stories? You hear them from time to time. The CEO at a corporation who gives it all up to serve Christ in some godforsaken land. Somebody who is wealthy, established, effective in what they are doing, serving God with all that they have, and they drop it all to serve Him somewhere. And not all of those stories are pretty, not all of those stories end well, but many of them are beautiful accounts of God's grace and messages to people that there's more to this life than just making money. There's more to this life than just getting along. There is the call of God that will, uh, that will lead people to lay things down that everybody else is dying to get and will go to serve Christ. Well, how does Elisha respond? Verse 20, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again. What have I done to you? He left the oxen and ran after Elijah. There's a lot about this verse that's unclear. It it seems Elisha, maybe he's just kind of standing there blinking, not sure what just happened to him as this prophet that everybody knows by name is walking through his field and journeying on north. Maybe that's what happened, but Elijah working his way northward isn't going to stop. So apparently Elijah has to kind of run after him after he considers this call for a bit. But at any rate, Elisha makes a decisive decision to take up the mantle of a prophet of God from that day forward. He follows the call. Elisha requests the opportunity first to kiss his parents. Now, some commentators, I mean, they just love to beat up on Elijah and Elisha here, and everything they do is wrong somehow. And so many have taken this and say, well, look, he's turning back to his family. He's not following Elijah. He's waffling. Not at all. He's running after Elijah saying, I'm coming with you. But can I tie up matters here with my home first? To kiss his parents was a symbol of respect, a a symbol of honor. He's leaving the farming operation. And he needs to have a conversation with them. This phrase is troubling, troubles us to understand what it means. Go back again, what have I done to you? But he's saying go back again. 
I don't think he's saying you're doing the wrong thing or go ahead, but remember, you're on, the, you know, you're on thin ice here of disobeying God. I think he's just saying go. I, I haven't called you to do anything that would prevent you talking to your parents. And so he goes back. Of course you may return. It's not a sinful delay, but a formal closure of his responsibilities as a farmer as he readies himself to follow Elijah's prophet. He will leave off plowing the fertile soil of Dancing Meadow to plow Israel's fallow ground. Now, we live in a very different day. There is no question that this narrative does not directly apply to any one of us in any direct sense. No one is going to show up at your place of work or knock on your front door and call you to serve God as a prophet. In fact, if someone does that, do not go. (laughs) You might call the police or something like that, but don't go. But each of us, as Christ's followers, must be ready to follow Christ wherever he leads. And that is directly applicable. Where does he point me? Where does he take me? Where am I supposed to go? And that, will, that call will come in this day and age, certainly in a direct conversation with one's church, with the leadership of that church or with godly members in that church helping you think through where God wants you to go. But each of us as Christ followers must be ready to follow Christ wherever he leads whenever he calls, and at any cost. There is no indication here that God was responsible to send a warning to Elisha that Elijah was going to show up. He appears to just be crossing the field and say, God wants you. And Elisha drops everything. The call of God to us is much more diverse. God may lead you to serve him overseas as a missionary. Are you willing to do that, if that is his call? Or he may call you to release a child to heed that call. Or he may call you home. Or call your mate home. And thus call you to live a radically different life. He may lead you away from the church you love to help plant another one. Or he may call you to suffer a new level of ridicule from unbelievers at work or at home or at school. He may call you out of your comfort zone to join a mission trip or witness Christ in a hard place. The question is, whatever that call is, however he leads us to consider his truth, and let me add here, he may also call you to just stay put. But whatever that is, are we ready to follow him wherever and whenever he calls? We are coached every day of our lives in this society to say, you are God of your life. You must decide for yourself where you're going and when and who you're going to be. The God of all creation The God who is our Savior has placed a claim upon us and said, You are mine. I love you. 
I will never lead you astray, but you are mine. And may we take that spirit into everything that we do in our lives to know that God can call me anywhere. He can bring anything into my life. He can assign any course for me. He is sovereign Lord. And it is my joy to follow where He leads. Are we ready to follow Him wherever and whenever He calls? Sure. Go back. Kiss your mother and father. We have work to do. Verse 21, he returned from following him and he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he rose and went after Elijah and assisted him. What is not happening here? is Elisha does not abandon Elijah, does not return home because his loyalty is weak. Everything Elisha does in verse 21 points to a decisive departure from his home in order to follow Elijah and take up the prophetic office. What is happening here is he kills the two oxen he was using uh, to plow with, and this is a symbol, taking that yoke and breaking it up, a wooden yoke and perhaps including the, the wooden plow that was there, and breaking it all up. He uses that wood to fire a kettle in which he puts a large amount of meat. People come to the meal then that he has here using this meat, and what he is doing by this, all of this is symbolically sacrificing these oxen, using the plow, destroying the yoke. He did this to make the symbolic statement, my life is dead to me, I'm taking up a new mission. It was a costly sacrifice. It was a decisive one. He burned his past as one commentator behind him. Henceforth, he would serve God. Another says it is a pledge of entire self-surrender. Elisha is severing all ties to his former occupation. He was now a prophet for life and he would not return to the farm. This symbolic act, and we enter into one here in assembly this morning. As these three come into the waters of baptism, it's the same message. I have turned away from my life, from the lordship of self, to walk with Christ and to identify this way through this symbolic act of baptism. It's a different setting, different covenant, but that's what he's doing. There is a sacrifice here of these oxen to say that my old life is gone and I walk in newness of life. Now, as I mentioned, killing these two oxen created a sizable amount of meat and the meat is given to the people to eat. This isn't just, you didn't go from house to house and deliver a, a, a lunch bag at everybody's house. This was a sacred meal organized around this animal sacrifice to God. Word was likely sent out to extended family members, to neighbors in the village, to people living and surrounding farming operations, to friends and whoever they could get to come to this meal. 
It was a festive occasion to some degree, marking a major turning point, not only in Elisha's life, but also in the life of this community. Elisha had put his hand to a different plow, and everybody would remember this day. He may have visited his home again. I'm not sure of that, but a key figure in that community walked out of their lives that day. God called him to leave. And he walked over yonder hill and never came back. Not as a farmer. But he arose, we read here in verse 21, and went after Elijah and assisted him. Assisted him. 2 Kings 3.11 speaks of Elisha as the one who poured water on Elijah's hands. That is an act of ritual washing before and after a meal. And it showed him to be Elijah's servant. That is his understudy, his disciple, the one who's walking with him. This was a man who was commanding other people what to do in business. But now he pours water over the hand of Elijah before and after meals. It's a whole new world for Elisha. God did not call Elijah to anoint Elisha because Elijah needed a companion needed sympathy and friendship in his time of discouragement. I'm sure that there was companionship here and that that it served to that end. But there is much more going on here than God providing a chum for Elijah to pal around with to keep him from despair. As indicated in verses 15 to 17, Elisha was called to serve as God's prophet in order to participate in the discipline of Israel. This was not an easy calling. And we can rejoice today for the way God used Elijah and Elisha in mighty ways to preserve the nation of Israel and to help keep alive a remnant of true believers in Israel. But we're a long ways from those days. And so we rejoice today that God continues to send prophets, that He continued in these generation after generation to supply prophets to serve as His voice to His people. We gather to to rejoice today that those prophets collectively bore witness to God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation that is in His name. The prophets, the people of God, every one of us leave our place, but God remains forever writing the story And so one prophet turning over to another prophet, his responsibility, all of these prophets serving together to point forward to the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the emphasis on the prophets. We could emphasize other things here, but as Romans opens up, the book of Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. The apostolic office following the prophetic office the New Covenant office, those who speak for God, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel of God, the message of salvation in Christ crucified and risen, the message that we proclaim here and demonstrate here in the waters of baptism This was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Specifically concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And as we move forward in Romans chapter 3, a slide that didn't make it through the internet somewhere, got lost here today, but let me just read that for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Listen again for the word prophets. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We could say Elijah and Elisha bore witness to it and many who came after them. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen for that gift of grace as we hear testimony here this morning. The ultimate reason that God established the office of prophet was to progressively speak to his people about the good news of salvation in Jesus. All of the law and the prophets were working their way there that we might see, believe, and trust in him. For us, it was not fire falling on Carmel. For us, it was the prophet who said, in three days I will rise from the dead. And he did. Have you come to this place? Have you come to understand this point? Have you come to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The one to whom the prophets pointed. The one God has always been orchestrating to step forward as the epitome of salvation. The one who secures that salvation for us. Have you come to the point of trusting in His death to pay the full cost of your sin, which God is rightly positioned to judge? Have you come to embrace the resurrection victory over death that Jesus has won? To know that in time and space, in reality, that He rose from the dead, giving life to His people. Elijah's call of Elisha to follow him is less intense, in fact, than Jesus' call for you to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. The call of Jesus is no trick. It's no bait and switch. There's no lies and deception in the advertisement. Follow me. And to do so, you must pick up your cross. We're not coming home. We're not going back to who you were. Self, the little Lord running your life. We're not coming back to that. Pick up your cross. You will die to self, to this world, to everything that you hold dear as an idol. And follow me. As these come to baptism, as we gather as a community of faith around the Lord's table, as we identify covenantally with one another, this is the call that we've received. This is the call that we've followed. The call of Jesus is a call to die to self, to die to the life that we know, to cling to to and embrace Him as the only hope in life and death. So we are not eternal, but He is. And if you pass this life today, I think the question we must ask is, am I confident on the authority of God's word that I will enter into Christ's presence forgiven 
and clothed in His righteousness before His throne. The ultimate prophet is your only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it is to this Savior that the prophets pointed. Father, I pray that you would grant faith to believe, to trust, to put all hope and confidence in Christ crucified and risen. I pray, Father, that we as a church may never falter on that trust, but that we may always proclaim the truth that we've come to know by your Spirit and your convicting power, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to you except through him, except through his death to pay the cost of our sin and earn for us his righteousness, his merits, his goodness, his right standing before you, becoming ours as sinners. Lord, we rejoice in that message and praise you for the call to baptize, to stand before a congregation and to declare in repentant trust that I have come to take up my cross and follow Christ. Lord, I pray your blessing upon what we now observe. And I pray that you turn every heart to Christ and draw to him those who know you not and draw to worship and praise and a life of fidelity to you, all who embrace him by faith. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.